You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Emma Newman. Hello, friends. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Brian Humphrey. And you're listening to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is a segment in which Dave and I have the great honor to share the microphone with some really amazing people. And uh, today is pretty awesome because the person that we're sharing the microphone with has an accent and I love accents. (laughs) You're a sucker for that. We're both suckers. I am. Actually, I suppose it would be a dialect. A dialect. Yes. Let's 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 call it what it is to be to be technically accurate. Well, Brian, allow me. Please sit back, relax, fill your teacup. Uh, uh, and allow me to to regale you the wonders of our guest host. Can I? Absolutely. Excellent. So, um, Brian, were you aware that there's an actual place called Penzance, as in the Pirates of? No. No, no there is. Uh, no, I mean, I assumed. Since well, sure, sure. Now, if I were to start talking to you about an astonishing young woman who was born in a tiny hospital between Penzance and Mousehole. Now, I know it's pronounced Mousel, but if you look at it in text, it's spelled Mousehole. So, so if I started telling you about this person, I'm betting that you would think I was describing the protagonist of some whimsical adventure filled with eccentric characters and obscure secret societies and wild chances that led to wondrous outcomes am i right absolutely yes without a doubt well sure and and that's exactly what i'm doing actually it just happens that this whimsical tale of adventure also happens to be the life of our guest host now as the legends go it is said that as soon as our guest host could write words she was writing stories At the age of four, she was working very intently at her grandmother's kitchen table. And when she was asked what she was doing, she said, writing a story, Nana. And she was. And honestly, she never stopped writing until she was 17. And we'll come back to that in a second. Because the world, you see, was a desperate disappointment to our guest host as a child. It simply didn't live up to the wonders painted in books and film and, most importantly, in her imagination. Now, never one to accept disappointment lightly, she went on and wrote herself into adventures about magical places and magical powers and weird things happening in the mundane world. In her early teens, she wrote a huge Star Trek Next Generation story because she was obsessed with it at the time and because she was, and still is, a huge colossal nerd, uh, a quality that she holds in high regard, as do we all. Then she wrote The Story. Now, it must have been a really good story because it got her into Oxford University to study experimental psychology, but it might have been too good because it was the last story she was to write for 10 years, triggering the longest bout of writer's block in recorded history. Now, Brian, with that factoid, a lot of people tend to fixate on the 10-year writer's block thing, but you and I both know that the really telling part of that bit is about studying experimental psychology, right? 
Oh, yes. That's very telling. So the interim was filled with various pursuits, including designer dressmaking and user interface design. Oh, my, she is a geek, isn't she? Uh, (laughs) But nothing was really firing on all cylinders for her. Then, 15 years later, there was an online competition, and our guest host had a friend who thought she should enter it. Now, our guest host demurred, so the friend invoked a spell of such terrible and undeniable compulsion that our guest host was forced to comply. The friend triple dared her to enter. Kids, don't try this at home. Uh, Now, she did enter, and (laughs) what a shock, she won. Uh, Incidentally, the prize was free website design, which our guest host then used to craft her current website. Now, she was back in the game, but our guest host had identified three problems that all writers have. Procrastination, lacking ideas, and having a readership. So she started a story club. Now, it's free to join, and the members send in story prompts. She picks a winner, writes a story from it, and sends it back out to all of the members. Now, is that brilliant or what? I mean, she she gets incredible feedback, a steady flow of inspiration, and engages with her fans on a level most writers never achieve. Uh, And it also ended up being the source of one of her first publications, a collation of 11 of those stories into her first e-anthology titled From Dark Places, tales united by an underlying theme of the darker side of humanity and other things. Going back to the whole experimental psychology thing. (laughs) See, we're working a theme here. Very nice. Uh, She kept writing her work, appearing in several anthologies, including Nothing But Flowers, The Red Book, and The Yin Yang Books. She got better and better, and then she did the thing that writers are apparently never supposed to do. She looked back. Specifically at From Dark Places, she felt she could do better. So she reached out to Jody Cleghorn from Emergent Publishing, one of the editors from those anthologies, and asked if she'd help spruce it up. Well, instead, Ms. Cleghorn showed the keen insight and offered to publish the second edition, which ended up being 25 stories long, including a brand new one to commemorate the event. Later, it was Twitter that introduced her to a publisher who would bring her novel 20 years later, a tale of post-apocalyptic London 20 years after it killed almost everyone, a theme again, uh, into the world. A fellow Twitter kin had heard of a new press starting up called Dystopia Press. Our guest host, Ever the Social Creature, reached out and exchanged tweets over the course of a month with this publisher. The publisher announced the first round of calls. Our guest host submitted, and it wasn't long before a contract was signed. Now, that all sounds very magical. What I neglected to mention was the 30-plus rejections she had received from publishers and agents prior to that bit of good fortune. She is tenacious, our guest host. She also has a lovely voice, as you'll discover as soon as I stop talking which eventually will happen, I promise, Um, (laughs) that she puts to use producing much of her work as serialized audio fiction. Now, her latest work, Split Worlds, due out in March 2013 from Angry Robot Books. Uh, uh, In this, our guest host has once again conjured an innovation. She's writing a short story a week set in the world of her novel, posting them to her site, sending them out in email, and producing each one in audio form as well. 
Some fun facts. Her favorite hobbies are role-playing, reading, Xbox, and role-playing, for which we love her dearly. Um, She's horribly allergic to fur. She wears her socks inside out because of the seam across the toes. And honestly, we all want to do that. Um, She has an embarrassingly large crush on China Mieville, but again, who doesn't? Uh, Her advice to beginning novelists is don't listen to advice. Right on, sister. Uh, to the whole frothing debate over ebooks killing paper books, she says, everyone calm down and have a nice cup of tea. Uh, incidentally, she's a big PG Tips fan and likes English breakfast tea as well. She can't stand the herbal and fruit teas because they always smell so promising and end up tasting like dishwater. Friends, milk, no sugar if you're getting tea for her. And lastly, if she doesn't write fiction regularly, she turns into, and I quote, the most evil, grumpy troll in England. Honestly, I'm awful. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the big overstuffed chair at the round table. Our guest host for this 20 minutes with Emma Newman. Emma, thank you so much for taking time out of what I can only assume is a monstrous schedule and and taking the time to share some thoughts with us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me. And thank you for the sublime experience of sitting there and listening to my life laid out. (laughs) It's kind of like this is your life, right? Yeah, did I really do that? Were there any egregious errors or things that need to be corrected in there? No, it was all frighteningly accurate. (laughs) Good, good, good. We'll just ask you to leave your house after we're done recording so our team can get the bugs and and listening (laughs) devices out. Excellent. Well, let's let's not mince words or bandy about. Let's get down to our 20 minutes with Emma Newman. I'm just going to set the clock here and we'll dive into it. And Emma, I got to tell you, one of the most intriguing things uh, from that whole list is is your advice to beginning novelists: uh, don't <laughs> listen to advice. And and I know that you've you've waxed philosophic in other interviews. And we, as much as we try to blaze new trails, I think this is important stuff. Would you be willing to expand a little bit on what you mean by don't listening to advice from seasoned authors who have been there before you? Uh, Yes, I'd love to because I agree. I do think it's important. I think that um, for beginning writers, and I still consider myself a beginning writer, even though I've been doing this really seriously for about six years now. Um, But for people who are really early on in learning how they write, how they approach a book, how they sustain themselves, how they maintain their stamina, there is a huge temptation, especially in these marvelous days of Tay Interwebs, to go and look and find advice from other people because it's hard and it's scary. But I firmly believe it's the worst thing that a person can do because nobody else can tell you how you write other than yourself. And if one author says, well, I write a thousand words a day and and the rest of the day I feed swans and I knit (laughs) and I then go and watch Quincy on reruns for the next six hours, then that person might think that they need to feed swans and knit and do all of the other things as well and get fixated on this idea of so many words a day and all this kind of stuff. And we're all gloriously different. And especially as writers and especially with the creative process, it's such an elusive thing, especially in the beginning. Actually, all the time, you know, things knock us out of whack and we're frightened and it's it's a very nerve-wracking thing. And, And I think that the only way that you can become the best writer that you best that you possibly can is to experiment and find your own way. And is that how you 
delved into the craft? Is is that how you you came to to achieve a word count capable of producing a novel and then having that novel published? Have, have, where have your explorations led you? Well, um, yes, absolutely. I, I think I was very, very lucky in that I did not realize that there were other writers on the internet when I really started to write seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and then I discovered this brave new world after I'd actually written the first draft of my first novel. And I look back and I think, well, thank goodness, because I know that I would have got myself into a terrible pickle if I had found all of this advice first. Wow. So I just, um, I made all of the mistakes I tried to fix them. Um, I agonized over various things. But then when I started to realize that I really, really needed to write, that I was a writer and that I needed to stop just faffing about doing other things, then I approached it scientifically and thought, okay, I'm just going to try different models. I'm going to try the thousand words a day. I'm going to try different times of day. I'm going to try, try feeding swans and watching reruns of Quincy. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. yes. I shall, I shall wear flannel one day and I shall wear tweed another day and see if I, you know, the words come more easily. All of those kinds of things. And from that, I realized that I work best in intensive chunks of a thousand words four times a day with gaps in between. So huh. my optimum word count is 4,000 words a day. Now, in no sense whatsoever would I want anyone to listen to that and go either oh my god I need to write 4,000 words a day or I hate her or um, why can't I do that it's just what I've developed as you know this is my full-time job now but it was a long process of experimentation and it wasn't just the the kind of productivity that's the big part of it but I've been kind of refining the creative process and whether I like to outline or not and all of this kind of stuff and where are you at um, on that do you like to outline? I'm um, what I call an agile outliner. <laughs> um, and let me explain that. <laughs> in in the, the kind of the, the world of coding and programming, and it's programming big, big websites, there's an approach called agile development. I don't know if either of you have heard of this. Oh, I'm a, I'm a web developer. I, I live ah, by so agile development. Ah, so you know. Yes. You know agile versus waterfall development, that kind <laughs> yes. of thing, yeah? Bri Brian's a teacher. So, he, his agi agility is dodging spitballs and, and things so very different <laughs> the, yeah that's that's my experience with agility yeah <laughs> so for for people who may be listening and thinking what on earth is she talking about the agile development approaches that you um you have a very 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 big project like a very big website for a very big company and it needs to do all kinds of things singing dancing making tea everything and as human beings it's very difficult for us to conceive an entire completed whole at the beginning of a process so they pick a smaller a chunk of the project and say, okay, let's work out what needs to happen. Let's code that part intensively, review it, go back to the client and say, is this doing what you think it should do? And inevitably, bless their hearts, most clients don't. They don't know. <laughs> and it's, it's impossible for people who aren't in that industry to know exactly what they want and to be able to convey it to developers in such a way as that there won't be problems and breakdowns in communication. There needs to be a priest so, that intercedes between <laughs> yes, one and yes, the other. These are, yeah, exactly. These are dark arts, <laughs> web development and things like this. So they need to have something kind of tangible that they can look at and say, oh, but actually we forgot that we have an entire other type of user who would look at that and not understand it. And you think, well, why didn't you tell me that at the beginning? <laughs> and then you nod and smile and say, well, I'm so glad we found that out now because now we can change it and move forwards. Whereas waterfall development is all about trying to conceive the whole and breaking it down into parts, but 
completing the project as a whole, delivering it to the client for them then to say, oh, but we forgot to tell you all of this. And by the way, can it be pink instead? That kind of thing. So we're, in terms of how this could possibly relate to outlining books, I find it very difficult to conceive a whole book all at the beginning. And so with the agile development approach, I have the kind of the, the wireframe effectively of the book and think, okay, this is what I want to do. These are the themes. This is the world um, in its kind of broadest brushstrokes. And then once I start kind of narrowing down onto exact plot lines, characters, character development, all that kind of stuff, then I will plan out five chapters at a time in scenes. And they're just bullet points. And then I write those five chapters. And then usually... And hopefully, at some point, one of those characters will do something I didn't expect. Or when I get there and I'm in the room and thinking, oh, actually, this is really stupid. This doesn't work. But because I haven't planned the entire novel, I can say, okay, right, that's not going to work. Let's do this instead. Or, oh, my God, I didn't realize that that was going to fall through the roof at that moment. That's so cool. I'm going to run with that. And so it, you can kind of constantly reevaluate where you're going and make sure that it's character driven as well as plot-driven. So that's the kind of agile outlining. Excellent. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Emma Newman after this brief promotional break. The Flash Pulp Podcast. Three to ten minutes of fiction brought to you thrice weekly. Now it's three, three, three apocalypses in one. Yay! Suffering from tough, stuck-on humans? Well, 20 hellish hours of suffocation in the all-encompassing web of Carwick the Spider God will get them right out. Too many brains lying around? The ravenous mouths surrounding zombie-fighting Ruby will quickly clean those up. Nosy neighbors? Infect them with the murder plague! and watch as they dissolve into paranoid maniacs bent on the preemptive assassination of their friends and family. Why stop at one end of the world when you can have all three? You can find them all at flashpulp.com or search for them on iTunes. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Emma Newman. To, to go back to something that we were talking about earlier, um, and a lot of what, what we do just generally, um, we can work hard and still be quite, you know, not quite create what we see in our heads. I, that's, I'm that way with drawing. I see something in my head, I try to draw it, it comes out as a stick figure. Um, but sometimes something just clicks and then suddenly we get it and we go, oh yeah, that's that's what I've been doing wrong. And you seem to have a really, really wonderful handle on short fiction in general, just from <clears throat> a couple stories that I've read of yours. And there's a lot of writers that choose to stay away from short fiction. Um, can you pinpoint a eureka moment or something that you had where it kind of clicked for you and you said, you know what, this is something that I enjoy doing and I feel like I do it well? Um, I don't think I've ever thought this is something I'm doing well about anything I've ever done in my entire life. So I don't think I've ever had that moment yet. But um, with short stories, no, I, like most of the best things in my life, I just kind of tripped and stumbled in and went, oh, that's good. Hello. And then, yeah, <laughs> that's wonderful. Lovely, splendid. I'll just carry on doing that. So um, with, I mean, in terms of um, instinct, I 
you mentioned my kind of early years. I was obviously writing short mm-hmm. stories. Um, and so I think I've always been kind of, I felt safe to play in that environment because there isn't a lot of commitment and whole, and writing an, a novel is a very, very, very big undertaking. Um, and I think sure. when I look back with the, the joyous hindsight that I have now, <laughs> I think I was kind of practicing. Um, but saying that, there is something about the short story form which I love. I love, um, well, how can I say, it? it's like when you're writing a novel, you're in a marriage and you have to work hard and there are days when you hate each other and you can't bear the thought of going to see them again and yet you love them dearly and when you're apart you're always thinking about them and you know there's such a part of you and when <laughs> it's over you know there's the grieving period and all that kind of stuff and it's a really really long-term commitment whereas with a short story that is just a fling that is a holiday fling that you can just enjoy you dive in have mad passionate literary sex and then just leave <laughs> and that's what i really like about short stories that you know you can just dive in have fun somewhere and like in from dark places there were so many different characters that I could just kind of visit and explore and drop into without having to commit months to the project. Have you ever found that, that, that one of those flings actually wants a little more from you and says, no, I, I, I don't want to go back to London. I want to stay here and let's get married and be a book. Has, has that yeah, had, that's, yeah, that's how the split worlds wooed me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A seduction of the darkest <laughs> yes. nature. It, it seduced me in that way. And I thought it was, well, I mean, it just kind of was in my, I woke up one morning and this story was fully formed in my head, which doesn't often happen, I can tell you. And um, I had to go out that morning. So I, I ran to my computer. I wrote it in 20 minutes. Holy smokes. I threw it onto the internet because I had a deadline for a Friday flash thing. And I went out and then I came back later on and people loved it. And I thought, oh. There might be something there. And then another little idea came up and another little idea came up. And that was, uh, oh, I don't know, two or three years ago. I find it impossible to remember how long ago things are now. I think it's because I'm getting older. But, uh, no, yes, that's because that things are happening at random intervals and, and they surprise you. <laughs> yes. So nothing's being planned here. This is all just happening no, spontaneously. No, it's not entered into right. my diary, nice and tidy, <laughs> that I can go back and refer to. But that's how um, the split world's crept up. Um, 20 Years Later was a role-playing game. Ah, yes. Uh, And the Split Worlds has, in one incarnation, incarnation been a role-playing game as well. Oh, wow. Where I was building the world. Um, Now, I guess we have to to talk about that, just because Brian and I are both gaming nerds. So many of our listeners are as well. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yay. yay. Oh, absolutely. Well, it it was the first, (laughs) I mean, it was the first resurgence of the oral tradition, uh, uh, where storytelling suddenly became cool. Well, actually, it wasn't cool for a long time. Uh, (laughs) But uh, but how, how, describe that process. How do you take the the, the very... um, well, fairly rigid and boxed in essence of a, a world defined by rules and dice rolls and parameters and evolve that into an emotional experience that, that literally breaks out of those boundaries and, and commands the page. Can you, can you describe that process for us? Um, well, for, in terms of gaming, I've never run a game out of a box. Oh. Um, I tend to always invent my own worlds. Um, always invent my own NPCs and use things like GURPS ah, yes. to run the system. Thank you, Steve Jackson. You're awesome. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
So, um, I, and I'm not, I'm not someone who's really, really, really into system because I'm absolutely appalling at math. So, you know, AD&D, the later editions, oh I was invited to NPC in a few games and, and I was given all of these dice and they were saying, and roll this and you do that. And I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so terribly sorry, but I'll be here for the next half an hour working out the result. Right. Let me go get my undergraduate degree in fourth edition D&D. <laughs> Like, right. <laughs> oh my goodness and this is actually a serious you know well i, I wouldn't want to say handy a, a disadvantage i have is the maths thing with my degree in experimental psychology obviously as a psychologist needs to be able to do statistics and i was just utterly pants at it it was awful <laughs> and i had this exam that i had to pass so that i could continue with my degree into my second year and i passed it by one percent over the threshold required <laughs> And I don't even know how I did that. And I didn't slaughter a chicken first or anything. It was just shit. Wow. But anyway, back to the game thing. So um, the system is secondary for me. It's the world and the characters. It's all character driven. Um, and uh, how, how I, oh, goodness me. It's such a long, organic process. Mm. Um, with 20 years later, I had an urge to create a story, but I was still deep in my writer's block. So um, I thought, well, I'll run a game. And so now I look back, I realize what I was doing was world building for my novels. There you go. But I couldn't, I couldn't write at the time. So um, I, ra- I built the world. I ran the game for my husband and for a couple of friends. And then during those years, um, I unpicked the knots, got unblocked, and then um, was on holiday in, in France with my, my father and some of my friends and uh, I woke up one morning and there was just this voice kind of talking and I suddenly thought that's the beginning of the book and I ran downstairs (laughs) I ran downstairs and started writing and and it all just it came out in 26 days the first draft it sounds like that's a that happens a lot in the Newman household that mom just runs through the house and leaps onto the computer and starts typing I do that has happened (laughs) my my son must think that I'm insane my husband knows that I'm insane so yeah it's um with with the worlds and um and things like that in games uh there is a big difference obviously between games and novels in terms of plot lines and characters because there were for example several plot lines that I had in the game of 20 years later that were just appalling in translation to a book that I just had to kill because you know either they were invented with the player specifically in mind like oh yeah they'll really enjoy that Mm -hmm. or that it was just too big and you have um, kind of different narrative structures because they're completely different mediums it makes sense for that to be so okay Okay. Very cool. That 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 helps because you know I, I think every gamer has has walked that road. It's like God, we're having so much fun with this game, and this is such a great story. Surely this could be a novel as well. Yeah, yeah. And I've got so many friends who I believe are frustrated writers <laughs> who are channeling. They're channeling their their creativity into a format which is is kind of readily accessible that we're all comfortable with because we were all doing this for years. And the transition to the page is a very very difficult. Um, and quite a painful process, especially if you're the GM, because obviously you love all of it. Right. And you know all of that world at once. It's all in your head, you know, all of the NPCs. And making critical decisions about what you keep and what you throw away in the first instance, but also how you take a reader through the journey of the book, the emotional journey with the characters, could be completely different from the structure of your game. So 
making that transition is a very, very difficult thing to do. Yeah, I've, I've heard the uh, the Pathfinder uh, chaps have been speaking about that on various podcasts. And it is, it's, it's a challenge. It's very definitely mm-hmm. a challenge. But one that obviously has borne fruit for you, and that is awesome. There was one thing that I was curious about jumping over to 20 years later. Is it 20 years later or 20 years after? Uh, 20 years later. 20 years later, okay. Um, and that's that one of the things that I... I work with with my students has to do with on and when you're writing for such a specific audience how much of that do you keep in mind when you're approaching something like that and do you think that that the the post-apocalyptic um genre is more, more popular in a young demographic than any other demographic how do you feel about that Okay, so there's, there's two, uh, was I aware of the audience? When I wrote the first draft of 20 Years Later, I didn't even know the phrase YA. Um, I, was, I was really living in a oh. little bubble. Um, I was a teacher, and I taught in London, um, and every day I walked through the areas that the book was set in. Um, and I had no awareness of that kind of stuff. And then once I'd finished the first draft, and a colleague of mine who was the school librarian prized it out of my hands to read it because she was so curious <laughs> as to what I'd been doing in every spare minute in the staff room. Um, she said, you've got to try and get this published because I didn't even write it to be published. I wrote it because it was in my head and it was driving me crazy. And then once it was kind of, once I'd kind of moved out of the, okay, I'm in my story, I'm in the novel and all that kind of stuff and then started to dip a toe into the, the cold ocean of publishing and everything one should know about it then I became aware that it was YA um, and <clears throat> in terms of being aware of the audience that came more into play when I was revising it and going through multiple drafts um, and then I really started to examine okay what do I think makes a book young adult what does a young adult readership need and look for in a book um, and sure. that refined it for me um whether young whether dystopian is more popular in young adult stuff i think that the dystopian and post-apocalyptic thing is a cyclical thing um and it's kind of like seems to be every 30 years or so um we all suddenly get mm-hmm. desperately excited about post-apocalyptic <laughs> and dystopian That's a good fiction point. <laughs> i yeah. hadn't considered that but you're yeah, right yeah, yeah. it sure. is it's entirely cyclical and the last time was in the 80s um, when I was growing up and I, I was constantly afraid of, you know, nuclear t- attacks and um, we read a book in school called Empty World, um, which mm-hmm. I reread last year um, and I'd already finished the trilogy of 20 years later. And I realized with a mixture of horror and glee that I'd kind of unconsciously written the rest of the story <laughs> because in, in school I'd read it and it's a novella. Um, and uh, there was obvious, it just went in deep and uh, it, it, it must have just festered there for years and years and years and years and years. And then I wrote what I thought could happen next with completely different characters, a completely different setup. But now I realize that feeling of wanting to know what happened next was probably what drove that story. But in, in terms of whether it's more popular in the young adult market, it's obviously been very, very successful. Um, and there's been a lot more kind of uh, coverage of very successful dystopian novels in that market. But I think all of us still love it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Wyndham, I'm just such a fan of, of Wyndham, and I think that he's, you know, one of those classics that everybody is going to keep reading. Sure, sure. Well, and you've, you've spoken in other right. interviews about the, 
the, the, the Bradbury view of, of inspiration, that everything seeps into the, the yeah. creative mulch of the brain and, and will, will germinate and, and ferment and evolve, bouncing off of all the other things that you're, that you're thinking about and consuming. So that, that just makes perfect sense. This just has a, a longer cycle, I think, a collective longer cycle of, of gestation. Then suddenly 30 years later, poof. We're back to dystopia, back to dystopia and end of the world. Yeah, and I, and I think new fears yeah. that arise in every generation, whether it's a fear of communism, whether it's a fear of nuclear war, whether it's a fear of viruses, you know, we have a new thing to be afraid of with every generation. And I think that the cyclical nature of post-apocalyptic and dystopian is almost like a kind of global psychoanalytic, psychodynamic exercise. There we go, back and to the experimental psychology. There we go. <laughs> Where we... <laughs> this is where we kind of collectively we collectively process our fears about this by putting it into fiction and we can be scared and think about what we would do whilst curled up in an armchair with a nice cup of tea. Right. And the and internet has facilitated sure. that by making so much more content available at your fingertips as the need or the fear arises. There you go. Yeah, and of course, yeah. you know, we live in an age now where um, the media and all politicians want us to be constantly terrified. No wonder we, we have to process that in God, dark fiction. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, well, guys, I, 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 our, our time, the, the timer has, has gone dystopian on me and is trying to exert a, 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 uh, some sort of overlordish impulse. So I've I fired it and it's or gone, but it also means we're out of time. I did have, we did have one quick question from the Twitter sphere, Emma, um, and it doesn't have to do with writing. But uh, the question was, uh, why do the English let their teapots get covered with a patina of tea residue? Ooh, well, none of the people I know let that happen. Ah, see, okay, ah, there so we go. It's maybe, maybe it's an individual differences thing. I, I don't know. But, very good. Um, and that I've concludes that our, our cultural cross-referencing here on the roundtable. Very good. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, thank you so much. This, there's so much more I wanted to talk about, but this, this, this yep. has been a genuine delight. We really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it's entirely mutual. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Brian, what about yeah. what about you, my friend? What what did you take from that twenty minutes with what 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 writerly goodness are you tucking in your pocket? One of the one of the things that stood out to me is that it's not always about the writing. It's not about sitting down and going, okay, what's my next idea? And that sometimes we have to step away from the writing and pursue our other passions, and that our inspirations, like gaming, will come through uh, from those passions that we can then get back in the seat and, and mow those down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I, I totally agree. And, and for me, it was, it was the affirmation of that. You do not need to have the whole story in your mind. If, if, if there's a spark that has captured your imagination and you can sustain it for, in this case, five chapters or, or one chapter or whatever, that, that, that is enough to sit down and say, I am going to write this and, and don your pith helmet and, and set <laughs> off and explore and see if, and, and, and the cool thing was, and see if something happens, uh, I'd see if something pops up and says, hi, I'm awesome. And you go, yes, oh my God, you are. And boom. And now you're off and running. And, and I, I, I tend to be a discovery writer, but I tend to get hung up on those. I must know the whole story thing. And, uh, uh that's just, that's just a good affirmation that it does work one chapter or five chapters or a bit at a time. You don't need the whole thing. That was awesome. Oh, yes. But isn't that, isn't that gaming as well? I mean, as a GM, I think, you know, sometimes some of my best sessions were when I had just like one idea and I thought, oh my goodness, this is going to last 10 minutes. 
what the hell am I going to do? Oh my God, they're here. Hi, everyone. <laughs> and then winging it, some of the most incredible stuff comes up. And then you think like six sessions down the line, oh sure. my God, my unconscious just gave me this entire plot line. <laughs> this campaign. And I am running with this. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Same with books. Yeah, and that's, again, an advocation of not running stuff necessarily out of a box because when it's your story, you understand it. it's hardwired into your heart and that imagination just keeps working on it the whole time. Absolutely. Yep, yep, very cool. Wow. Well, friends, I, I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. Uh, uh, and if you're feeling that warm, fluffy vibe uh, uh, and your teacup has has dwindled down to nothing, well, go refill that bad boy uh, and, and then uh, set yourself down and spread the word about the roundtable. Uh, uh, thank you to all of you who have posted uh, reviews out on iTunes. That's always appreciated. The wonderful comments on the on the posts have been a genuine delight. Um, but generally, just let let the word be spread that there is awesomeness on the potosphere, and it is round and has a table here. So. <laughs> um, we're out on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. We're at Twitter at writers podcast. And you can always drop us a line at the table at roundtablepodcast.com. Now, now we're all feeling that that warm glow of inspiration and awakened creative mojo. Now, hang out in just a couple of days. Emma is going to be back and we are going to sit down at the table and we are going to workshop an astonishing story. It's going to be fabulous, but you've got a couple of days to kill between now and then. So, Brian, what do you think? Any suggestions on, on time killers or things to do between now and then? Well, what I always do when I'm not really sure what else to do is go right. Go right. Absolutely. And I will tell you, dear friends, you find what you're looking for. So look for the awesome. Look for the wow. The blue label top shelf goodness is there. You will find it. We will see you all in just a couple of days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frosty, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2013 by the Roundtable Podcast and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like. And you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work, as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host, or learn more about the Roundtable Podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast or you can send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.